Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty Show on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Want to give a quick shout out here to Ammo.com, one of our fine sponsors here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Uh, big believer in uh, buy it cheap and stack it deep. And it's not because I'm preparing for the end of the world. It's just I've I have learned over time that uh, ammunition is a wonderful thing in that it's how you convert money into skill. So having a goodly supply of ammo means you have ample opportunity to get out and practice, to become skilled. And it's fun. That's just kind of an added benefit. So if you're looking for rimfire ammunition or shotgun or rifle or handgun ammo, ammo.com has the selection. They've all got, they got it all right there in one place. You want to do bulk purchases, you can often save a lot of money by doing it that way. Go take a look for yourself. Don't forget at checkout, there's a little drop-down menu, and they'll ask you, would you like to donate 1% of the purchase to helping these organizations, to helping one of these organizations, which is uh, supportive of liberty? And guess what? Loving Liberty is among those organizations you can choose from. So if you decide to uh, go to ammo.com and do some shopping, just remember us when you uh, get to that checkout stage, and we would greatly appreciate it. Also find some terrific articles to read as well. All right. Let us discuss. We've got a few things to talk about today. Let's, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, my life as a terrorist by Jeff Minnick. A great little piece from him. Uh, also, uh, oh, this was a terrific one from the Reverend Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. UN Climate Chief says, stop worrying and have children. Haven't heard very many people, at least at that level. Saying that kind of thing. So that's that's actually very, uh, very worthwhile. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, humility as the antidote for political meanness. This is an excellent essay from Barry Brownstein. And uh, if, if I have some time, I don't know if you spend much, if any time on Twitter, but there's a terrific article by Brandon Weikert, how Trump's Twitter might cost him his chance at reelection. It's a worthwhile article. We'll share that coming up in just a little bit. In the meantime, where to begin? Let's start with my life as a terrorist, Jeff Minnick. He says, before I begin this narrative, you need to know I'm not a frequent flyer. In fact, I'm an infrequent flyer. In the last 20 years, I've boarded an aircraft three times. So he says, please bear that in mind. In August, he says, I went online and purchased a ticket to fly round trip from Washington, D.C. to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for a memorial service for my mother-in-law. On the day before the flight, I printed out a boarding pass and joined my son and his four-year-old for the trip to Reagan Airport. We arrived at the airport in a timely fashion. As the machine approved my boarding pass, I noticed I was, one of the, I was only one of the many people around me using a piece of paper for my pass. Everyone else was using a phone or getting their pass with their confirmation number. My son glanced at my boarding pass and said admiringly, Hey, how did you rate that? Rate what? The TSA pre-check. Well, what's that? It means you don't have to stand in line and have them check everything. And Jeff Minnick says, I shrugged, maybe from that trip to, to Europe four years ago. 
Well, because he travels so much, and as uh, Jeff Minnick found out later, because he had applied for pre-check, he says, my son was also pre-approved. So we walked past the line of passengers taking off their shoes and belts, went through a cursory scan, and soon boarded the aircraft. Now, he says, on the return trip, I had no such pass, but I had my reservation number. Like most of my fellow travelers, I punched the number into the machine and received a boarding pass. This time, my pass had no pre-check. Well, we'll wait for you on the other side, my son said. After five minutes standing in line, I stepped forward, removed my belt, stepped out of my shoes, emptied my pockets into a bin, and hoisted my suitcase and backpack onto the moving belt. I stepped into the scanner, followed instructions to spread my arms and raise my arms, and then was asked by a TSA officer if he might pat me down. You aren't sensitive, are you? He asked. Well, I do laugh when the doctor pushes on my stomach. He smiled and ran his hands over my pockets. Pat down complete. I was walking to get my luggage and pocket items when another TSA officer motioned to me. Sir, would you step this way, please? I went to the end of the counter. Sir, do you have any pointed objects in your backpack? Uh Uh-oh. I'd forgotten about the knife. Yes, I said, I carry a pocket knife. Now, I use the knife to cut apples and occasionally open a package, but I didn't tell him that. He dug in the pack and pulled out the knife. Then he reached into the same pocket and pulled out my pepper spray. Oh, I guess I forgot that too, I said. He gave me a look, not so much of suspicion, but of pity. I don't fly much, I said. He held up both the pepper spray and the knife. Sir, you have three choices. And he gave me the choices. The first involved paying to mail these items to my home address. I forget the second option. I was a little stressed. The third was, you can voluntarily give up these items. I voluntarily give them up, I replied. He handed me my backpack and I walked away feeling like the biggest fool in the airport, but a fortunate fool. He hadn't detained or arrested me, probably because I'm an old guy. I was decently dressed and I looked as dumb as a brick. Now, this was the same week the San Francisco County Board of Supervisors declared the National Rifle Association a terrorist organization. And Jeff Minnick says, I belonged to that organization for nearly 20 years. I shoot as rarely as I fly, but I am an advocate for the Second Amendment, and I support the NRA's firearms programs for the young, for females, and for hunters. According to those ladies and gentlemen of San Francisco, I qualified as an armed terrorist trying to board an aircraft. And he says, my experience raises some questions. I had flown from Washington to Milwaukee carrying a knife. The blade was over two inches and a canister of pepper spray. How could that happen? How often do others slide through security carrying potential weapons? He says, because I belong to the NRA, am I a terrorist? Will I be arrested if I enter San Francisco? He says, from what I've read online, that city already has plenty of problems. Homelessness on a massive scale, needles and human excrement on the sidewalks. Given those problems, do the city fathers really have time to worry about the NRA? Finally, he asks, why do we scan passengers in their luggage in our airports and visitors to our national museums and courthouses, yet tens of thousands cross our southern border undetected? We know some of those slipping over the border are criminals. Could not some of them also be terrorists? And if so, why do we allow porous borders while we pat down travelers in airports? Now, for the record, I'm not going to suggest that, you know, Jeff, you've got a good idea. Let's let's build Borders that resemble a TSA checkpoint. I don't think that's necessary either. 
But if anything, what it should point out to us is that what's happening at the airport is largely it's for show. Now, I have friends who have worked for the TSA have told me, oh, well, we really can't talk about the times we've we've stopped somebody from from doing something where they could have hijacked a plane or they could have you know carried out some kind of terrorist attack. And and perhaps you won't think too badly of me if I tell you, but I'm skeptical. I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case. As cynical as it may sound, I really believe that the biggest purpose served by the uh, the TSA checkpoints and, and airport security is to remind us of our place in the pecking order. And to remind us that our government or its designated agents have the power to mess with us at will. They can screw with us anytime they want, and there is nothing that we can do about it. And that's something that we are trained to accept. It's one of the reasons why when you see people getting in line for the airport to, you know, security checkpoint, there's almost always this, this just uh, look of resignation on their faces. And sometimes you encounter very, you know, congenial and professional, nice people, you know, conducting those, those checks. Sometimes you, you get to the person who's recently empowered and they're tripping heavily on that power. I've only seen it a couple of times, but it's it's ugly. But to pretend that, you know, this is really necessary and it's it's saving us all from everything, you know, to make sure you don't have too much toothpaste in that tube or to make sure that, uh, you know, you're going through the porno scanner or getting the pat down. A lot of it is just for show. And there's a kind of conditioning that goes on there. And I don't care if I sound conspiratorial, if, if I need to be fitted for a tinfoil hat, so be it. But every time I go through the airport, I'm looking around it with the idea of what is this supposed to be representing? Standing in line, moving like cattle, only move when you're told to, stop here, stand there, raise your hands, do this, turn around. I understand there are people who are trying to make a difference. But at its heart, I can't help but believe it's it's just there to get us in the right mindset of subservience to anyone in authority. Any safety that accrues to us is purely accidental. Now, that's only my opinion, and you're welcome to it. If you'd like to uh, counter, please feel free. 801-331-8113. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Just a reminder, coming up uh, in the next hour, it's uh, CSC Talk Radio with Beth Ann. Yep, bringing America home. That's what she does every single weekday at that time. And, uh, of course, the Reverend C.L. Bryant. He holds down the uh, the fort here from uh, 10 until noon, Mountain Time, followed by the Joe Carey Show from noon to 1. And uh, today it's the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education, where he is the President Emeritus. 
And it's going to be another great show with him, followed by the Kate Daly Show and then uh, Liberty Roundtable with Sam Bushman. Just to round out our lineup through the afternoon. This headline caught my attention, especially considering the source. U.N. Climate Chief, stop worrying and have children. This is from the Reverend Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, who says climate change may well be a problem, but the chief of the United Nations Agency on Climate says it won't destroy the world and shouldn't stop young people from having children. Alarmist rhetoric from doomsters and extremists that babies will destroy the planet resembles religious extremism and will only add to young women's burden by provoking anxiety. Now, Pateri Talas is uh, no climate change denier. This is the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, the UN's special agency on weather and climate, with 193 member states and territories. The WMO's most recent global climate report states that evidence exists of anthropogenic drivers for carbon emissions, but not that they are determining the causal factors of natural disasters. Talas's foreword was followed by statements from both the UN Secretary General and the President of the UN General Assembly. And Talas recently called for urgent climate action. And that makes his calming words all the more significant, according to the Reverend Ben Johnson. Man-made climate change, Talas says, is not going to be the end of the world. The world is just becoming more challenging. In parts of the globe, living conditions are becoming worse, but people have survived in harsh conditions. The real threat, he says, today is from misguided environmental extremism, which demands the world make radical changes to their economic and personal lives or become complicit in genocide. While climate skepticism has become less of an issue, now we are being challenged from the other side, Tala says. There are doomsters and extremists. They make threats. As an example of extreme proposals, Ta'ala says they demand zero carbon emissions by 2025. And their faith rivals that of the most convinced religious zealot. Talas tells Finland's financial paper, oof, I don't even know how to say the name. It translates to economic life. Talosalama, on September 6th, the, inter, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, he says, have been read in a similar way to the Bible. You try to find certain pieces or sections from which you try to justify your extreme views. This resembles religious extremism. I can't tell you how awesome it is to see a U.N. official actually calling this out like, like it is. He says this polarized environment negatively impacts young people's mental health especially for women who want to have children. Talas says the atmosphere created by the media has been provoking anxiety. The latest idea is that children are a negative drag. And he says, I'm worried for young mothers who are already under much pressure. This will only add to their burden. The most prominent person to ask this question this year has been Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who asked in a social media video, is it okay to still have children? Now, environmentalists warn that the largest carbon footprint a person will ever leave is having children. 
Senator Bernie Sanders recently suggested U.S. taxpayers should fund abortion around the globe as a means of reducing overpopulation. Eating meat, by the way, also warms the earth because of what the Green New Deal bluntly classified as farting cows. Taalis dismisses these concerns, though, saying if you start to live like an Orthodox monk who's celibate and who follows a vegan diet during fasting seasons, the world is not going to be saved. Now, Talis deserves a hearing in an age when the words climate change cannot be uttered apart from catastrophic. Adapting to predicted climate change may be less painful than adopting solutions to prevent it. And again, as the Reverend Ben Johnson notes, when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced they would plan to have a maximum of two children, the much-cited and likely little-read IPCC report estimates the cost to repair the planet if politicians do absolutely nothing. Here's what it says. The IPCC found that if governments around the world do nothing to lower CO2 emissions which it calls the no-policy baseline scenario. It will cause a global gross domestic, global gross domestic product loss of 2.6% by 2100. Now compare that momentarily to the cost of a population bust. The IMF found that in more developed countries, including the UK, the increase in public health spending alone over 2015 to 2050 is equivalent to 57% of today's GDP. And the present discounted value of the increase between 2050 and 2100 would be a staggering 163% of GDP. So if population dips, the cost of social welfare programs alone vastly outstrips the cost of adaptation. This is just one example. Proposals that would eliminate jobs and opportunity by banning industry or useful industry or redistributing wealth will only intensify the pain. The Green Deal's $93 trillion price tag may not be worth paying. Then you add to that a woman's lifelong regret that she never had the children that she wanted. That's certainly not a price worth paying either. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian, Sam calling. How are you? Excellent. My uh, comments basically on this is uh, there's no... This zero carbon emissions is a fantasy out of their, out of their, I don't know, their wildest dreams or something, because there's no way to achieve that. It ain't going to happen. And my attitude is if they want to deal with uh, zero carbon emissions, they can start with themselves. Here, here. You know, it's, uh, it's like those people who talk about overpopulation. I always have one simple comment to them, same kind of thing. If you're so convinced there's too many people, then you go and uh, you take yourself out first, and then there might be a conversation. doesn't mean there will be, but there might. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's a lot easier to tell everybody else, hey, you all, get off the bus. But no, if, you, if yeah. you're serious about it, no, show us, lead by example. There you go. And that's simply what I have to say about most of this stuff, you know. It's, but see, if you notice, the same people that talk about uh, CO2 emissions, which, first of all, um, carbon dioxide is um, it's not, a, it's, it's, it's not a, a harmful gas, as they like to put it. In fact, you dump uh, carbon dioxide into greenhouses, your plants will grow better. So, um, 
you know that's the you know that's the first fallacy that we have to get rid of out of all of this. But the point of the matter is, is that these same people that talk about it, they're the ones flying around on their jets and everything. Who's creating carbon when they're flying to all these places? No, that's that's a good point. And I think Joe yeah. Carey had pointed out, you know, it was it was so thoughtful of uh, Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle to, you know, fly their their pollution spewing jet around the world to talk about how important it is that we save the climate. Yeah. They should have rode a bike or something yeah. similar. And this is the thing I always try to keep, uh, because every time you can get somebody to think, and that's one person that may not have been thinking before, but I, this has been continually my line every time these subjects come up, because you've you got to get these people to see the hypocrisy in this somehow. Here, here. Hey, Sam, thank thank you so much for the call. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back after this. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Just a couple of quick thoughts as we uh, wrap up the article about UN uh, climate change chief says, stop worrying and have children. That's kind of good, right? Because there are politicians who are talking about, uh, you know, that the most irresponsible thing you could do is bring a child into this screwed up world. I suspect every generation kind of has to go through this, right? I remember when my wife and I were newlyweds and we were talking about, you know, that, you know, that one day we would have kids. And is this wise? Is it wise to bring kids into this screwed up world? Well, we did it anyway. Six of them, no less. And I'm really grateful. Because the world still is screwed up. In fact, it's slightly more screwed up now. But uh, man, wouldn't have it any other way. Here's what uh, Reverend Ben Johnson says. He says, we must be clear eyed that neither the corporate titans that the environmental left excoriates nor the political elite whom it empowers will bear the worst of future economic changes. Often, like Ted Turner, the population reduction advocate who has five children and raises buffalo, they do not adopt their proffered lifestyle changes either. The wealthy and powerful will always have sufficient resources to cope with the consequences. The brunt will fall on the world's poor and middle class who cannot afford meat or travel, who are deprived of employment opportunities and whose taxes rise astronomically. And the Reverend Ben Johnson says we must wisely decide when, how and if we wish to adapt. We must analyze the man-made contribution to climate change, identify the nations most responsible for it and weigh the costs of imposing often draconian solutions versus the actual cost of adapting to the modestly warmer environment. And we must do so with the understanding that we're saving the planet for a purpose, namely to hand it on to a new generation. So when it comes to climate change, he says, Christians owe the world more than our action. We owe it our prudence. Oh, I like that. All right. Speaking of prudence, let's talk about Trump's Twitter how it might cost him his chance at re-election. 
This is from Brandon J. Weikert on intellectualtakeout.org, originally published on American Greatness. And he starts out by noting that politics cannot be divorced from culture. And he says, many people are wedded to the misperception that in a democratic society, we elect leaders who are somehow better than the ordinary voter. In fact, democratic societies tend to elect leaders who are in most ways a reflection of the voters themselves. Since political leadership in a republic is only as strong as its weakest voter, its elected voters are very often not among the country's best and brightest. In this way, elected officials in the common culture from a feedback form a feedback loop, each reinforcing the other. So since the early 2000s, reality television has been the preferred form of entertainment on television for most Americans. Since that time, social media has become ubiquitous as a form of mass communication. And this is to say nothing of the fact that while most Americans cannot name their senator or in some cases the president, most Americans do know their celebrities. Now, Donald J. Trump is all of these things, a reality television celebrity and a social media icon that he would go on to become America's 45th president should have been a surprise to no one. Trump tweets, like all of us do, about things ranging from the profound to the banal. And he usually does it in real time, all of the time. Since 2009, the president has sent out 4,178 tweets per year, averaging about 12 tweets per day. Now, Trump drives American politics a Twitter. What he means by this is Trump's name-calling is legendary. Most often, Trump spends his time on Twitter airing what most people would consider petty grievances. He also gives little thought about offering snap judgments regarding economic or foreign policies to the public via Twitter. The president's tweets have contributed to overall volatility in the stock market, prompting J.P. Morgan Chase to create a new version of the current volatility index, which they refer to as the Volfefe Index. The Volfefe Index specifically measures how much of an impact a presidential tweet will have on the market per day so that investors can make more informed decisions. Everyone knew who and what Trump was when he ran for president. That's why many people, not just on the left, but sniveling elites on the right as well, opposed Trump's candidacy. In the words of F.H. Buckley, Trump simply doesn't do Sonny, a la Ronald Reagan. Yet Buckley, who was an early supporter and advisor to Trump's 2016 campaign, is among the true believers beginning to question the efficacy of the president's Twitter habit. He says Trump's nastiness is making him look weak. Similarly, Michael Walsh warns his readers that Trump could effectively tweet himself out of re-election through a phenomenon he calls Trump trauma. Now, the author here says Buckley and Walsh are both right to sound the alarm. Trump risks appearing as both weak and mean to the average voter. In the beginning, Trump's tweeting protected him from the media's attempt to ignore his campaign. Now, however, Trump is drowning out other voices in the political system to his own detriment. Consider, last week, the Democratic Party's presidential candidates publicly endorsed a series of programs that to an ordinary American would be considered insane. Schemes ranging from confiscating all personal firearms from law-abiding Americans to touting policies that, had effective, that would effectively would ban personal automobiles. Meanwhile, while massively increasing taxes. 
Pete Buttigieg even seriously argued that the Bible condones abortion. Now, ordinarily, not even the mainstream media could ignore so many prominent Democratic Party voices sounding so nutty. But Trump's Twitter obsession lets the press ignore almost every crazy thing that the Democrats have been saying in favor of highlighting the president's latest attack. For example, the president clearly misspoke when he said that Alabama was under threat from Hurricane Dorian. Yet rather than simply tell the press that he misspoke and move on, the president insisted that Alabama had been under threat. To prove his point, Trump apparently drew a circle around Alabama with a black Sharpie marker on the map of the hurricane provided by the National Oceanographic Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. When that did not work, Trump spent the next few days tweeting about the incident and posting links to various sources, all in an effort to dig himself out of the media pickle he had placed himself in. To no avail. Trump could have gotten out of this mess had he just not made it an issue on Twitter. And this is just a snapshot of the double-edged sword that is social media use. At this point, the only person who can defeat Trump is himself. Each one of Trump's Democratic rivals are publicly hurting themselves. And until the presidential field is winnowed down, Trump should embrace a media policy akin to the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Perhaps Trump could dial back on his social media activities for now. After all, when one's foes are intent on destroying themselves and each other, the best course of action would be to step aside, stay silent, and let them. Now, despite some of his idiosyncrasies, however, Trump has been a good president. He presides over a healthy economy. He's managed to bring balance to America's otherwise feckless foreign policy, just like David P. Goldman. The author here says, I cannot consider myself to be a part of the always Trump movement. Despite this, though, he says, I cannot ignore that real clear politics has Trump's most recent recent unfavorable rating at an unsettling 53.8 percent. And he says that should concern every always Trump voter. Trump can ameliorate this by toning down his tweet storms from category five to a mere category three, at least until we are closer to the election. And again, this is an essay from Brandon J. Weikert, first published in American Greatness and then republished on intellectualtakeout.org. So we're going to take a break here in about a minute. When we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, I'm going to share with you this essay from Barry Brownstein, just published yesterday, about how humility is the antidote for political meanness. Now, lest you think that this is only directed at Trump and Trump supporters, I think Barry makes a very powerful case that uh, this has to happen across the board. And I think of all the things that I find uh, off-putting or distasteful about uh, the upcoming general election. It's the lack of humility that seems to, to be the hallmark of partisan politics. Politicians can never be wrong. Their supporters can never be wrong. The other team can never be right. I don't know about you, but uh, the truly great people that I have met in my life, one of the things that made them truly great was the fact that they had, at some point, discovered the power of humility. 
I don't see a lot of that happening today. And that concerns me, no matter who is in office. Hello there, and welcome back to Loving Liberty. So I really don't spend a lot of time obsessing over what the president has tweeted, but I notice that it seems to uh, seems to always garner a lot of uh, press coverage. And, and sometimes he can just be, um, Donald Trump can be a pretty mean person. Now, that has no bearing on his, uh, you know, ability to be a president, but uh, he can be petty. When I saw Barry Brownstein's essay that came out yesterday about how uh, humility is the antidote for political meanness, I knew it was going to be a good one, and Barry Brownstein did not disappoint. But interestingly enough, he doesn't start with Donald Trump. He starts with Mary Ann Williamson. Remember her, the Democratic presidential candidate? The more spiritual Democratic presidential candidate, who apparently is shocked at the meanness of her fellow Democrats. Now, this is somewhat understandable. As Barry Brownstein points out, Williamson, a spiritual teacher, relatively new to politics, complained in an interview in The New Yorker, quote, I know this sounds naive, but I didn't think the left was so mean. She says, I didn't think the left lied like this, end quote. On the Sinclair show America This Week, she advised her fellow Democrats to expand their base by dropping their condescending attitudes toward people of faith. She particularly has trouble understanding why Democrats have condescending attitudes toward prayer. During the same interview, a hot mic caught her musing. What does it say that Fox News is nicer to me than the lefties are? What does it say that the conservatives are nicer to me? But as Barry Brownstein points out, meanness is not limited to the left. Recently, Baptist minister Jonathan Carl of Kentucky was the accidental recipient of one of President Trump's demeaning tweets, calling Carl a lightweight reporter. Now, Trump had misdirected his tweet, intending it for a reporter whose name is the same as the minister's. But Barry Brownstein says no matter how you feel about President Trump, Carl's comments in an open letter should bring you to a full stop. Carl wrote to Trump and said, Your heart must be in a dangerous place to have such a consistent flow of defamation and disrespect Towards so many. And Barry Brownstein says, I can imagine that Marianne Williamson believes that the hearts of many of her fellow Democrats are also in a dangerous place. He says, Carl's letter to Trump reminds us that we are all lightweights. Carl wrote, you called an experienced reporter a lightweight. But he said, let's be honest. You are a lightweight, too. We all are. God is the only heavyweight who knows it all and who gets it right all the time. That should keep things in perspective for all of us. You are not the ultimate commander in chief. May we all be reminded of our national auto in motto rather in God we trust and be more faithful to him, avoiding the temptation to trust more in a politician, party or post. So Barry Brownstein asks the question, do we underestimate the power of humility? Have we come to associate humility 
with weakness. John Edis writes, We have been willing to believe that people who are humble are easily bulldozed by others and aren't willing to stick up for themselves. Many define humility as having a low opinion of oneself. Yet the research is clear. Effective leaders are humble. In his seminal book on leadership, Good to Great, Jim Collins examined high-performance companies. Collins found that such companies were led by leaders who blended extraordinary personal humility and professional will. In interviews with Collins, great leaders didn't talk about themselves, while other less effective leaders were extremely eye-centric. Eye-centric leaders tended to take all the credit for success in their organizations, but shifted all responsibility for failures to malevolent forces external to themselves. And again, Barry Brownstein asks a good question here. Do any of our candidates exhibit the extraordinary humility Collins found in successful leaders? Pastor Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, explained humility this way. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Who among us couldn't benefit by thinking about ourself less? And then Brownstein says, as for Marianne Williamson, her best-selling book, A Return to Love, is based on a course in miracles. And a course in miracles echoes Carl's kind, or call rather for kindness. Quote, when you meet anyone, remember, it is a holy encounter. As you see him, you will see yourself. As you treat him, you will treat yourself. As you think of him, you will think of yourself. Never forget this, for in him you will find yourself or lose yourself. End quote. Always think of him. You will think, as you think of him, you will think of yourself. In other words, says Barry Brownstein, tossing your psychological trash on the side of the road boomerangs. Our meanness towards others might temporarily soothe us, but our thoughts belittling others can never leave their source, our own arrogant mind. So Carl and Williamson are right. We've traveled this rocky road of meanness for too long. Most of us could benefit from more humble pie in our diet. I think that's a great reminder. Thank you, Barry Brownstein, for putting this uh, on paper. I know that uh, some of the greatest people that I've known, I'm going to drop a couple of names here. Um, Lavoie Finicum being one of them. Ammon Bundy being another. They are two of the most humble people that I've ever met in my life. And here's the thing. Humble does not mean pushover. It doesn't mean that they're doormats. In fact, if anything, their humility stems from the fact that they trust completely in God. And it shows. They trust so completely in God that they are willing to or were willing to take a stand. Even when it was not popular or safe to do so, they were willing to suffer having their names dragged through the dirt and the mud to have people questioning their motives in every possible way. They were willing to pay the price of being arrested, in the case of Lavoie Finicum, uh, of being killed for standing up for what they believed in. And they were humble enough to submit to it. 
Now, sadly, Lavoie is gone from our midst, but uh, man, his influence still lingers on. And there are still people who might not have given it so much as a second thought, who, because of what happened to Lavoie Finicum, are now fire-breathing, dyed-in-the-wool patriots and people who love the principles and practices of freedom and who will not be buffaloed into walking away from them. Ammon Bundy. Ammon would be embarrassed. I'm sure he would to hear me talk about him like this, but, you know, this is one of the advantages of being his friend. He would never toot his horn like this, but uh, as his friend, I can. And I can do so as as an interested, uh, you know, third-party bystander. I want to share something with you that uh, I don't I don't know if Ammon will appreciate me sharing this or not, but um, for all the people who look up to Ammon and go, man, that guy has just got it so together. He never, you know, he never blinks an eye. He, he is just as cool as can be under pressure. I just want to assure you that uh, Ammon is standing up and fighting a lot of people's battles right now. But he has had his own battles to fight for the last few years and and putting his life back together after two years of sitting in jail, waiting for trial has not been easy. And I love the fact that he's humble enough. He, you won't find him complaining about this, but you will find him reaching out and helping people. I think that ability to lead, not just by words, but by actions, combined with his humility and willingness to to be called names and to be misunderstood and to be misrepresented, that's one of the, those are some of the factors that make Ammon Bundy a very powerful advocate for liberty. But I also see it in how he regards other people, and even this gets him in trouble sometimes when he talks about we don't need to treat people coming across our southern border like there's so many insects that need to be stepped on. That's not Ammon turning into some left-wing bleeding heart who wants to, you know, shower uh, people coming into this country with or without permission with, you know, all of the gifts that your taxpayer money can buy. That's a guy who's humble enough to remember that God is still in charge and that the things that uh, our Creator asks of us ultimately should be of greater importance than the things that government demands of us. Food for thought. Just know a little humility does go a long way for all of us. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 